think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I am out of town this week. It is my kids' spring break such that such a thing even exists in this school from home hybrid world we live in these days and my family has decamped for eastern tennessee for a few days so i am taking the opportunity to take a small break so the interview it is an encore which is sort of a fancy way of saying a rerun but it is from a while ago and if you're a new listener in the last year or so maybe you haven't heard it but because i care so much I'm recording a new intro, and it's an opportunity to talk a little bit about the ABA checklist committee and the ABA checklist, because we just added three species to the checklist last month. The ABA has changed a lot in the 50 plus years that it has been around, but the ABA checklist committee is one of those foundational elements of the organization, a committee of eight birders who are tasked with maintaining the list of birds for the ABA area that all the all the listers use adding, subtracting, et cetera. We've had some committee members on the podcast before, uh, Peter Pyle, David Sibley, Tom Johnson, who I actually forgot was on the committee when I had him on recently, such as the largely independent nature of this body. So the checklist has three new species on it. Northern giant petrel from a bird photographed from a fishing vessel off the coast of Washington at the end of 2019. One of those truly bonkers Vagrant records we get sometimes. No birders saw this one, but thanks to the crew of the fishing boat for having the wherewithal to photograph something that they recognized as different. And two more that are interesting mostly from an administrative perspective. Uh, First, mitered parakeet, an established exotic in a number of states, primarily Florida. The Florida Records Committee accepted it. It is generally the case that the ABA Checklist Committee will also accept it when a state or province legitimizes an exotic population. But there are mitered parakeets in California and Hawaii, too. And now that those species is on the list, birders can count those if they like. Totally up to you. And with that in mind, we consider the third bird, the hooded crane, added to the list based on an individual taken by a hunter in western Alaska last year. You may or may not remember that this is not the first hooded crane to turn up in the ABA area. There was a long-staying bird seen in Nebraska, then Tennessee, then Indiana, probably the same bird each time, as this is a circuit that Sandhills take, and it was with Sandhills, Sandhill cranes every time. There's also an older, unaccepted record from Idaho with some other stuff going on, but but this Nebraska, Tennessee, Indiana bird was big news. It was seen by a lot of people, was the subject of a lot of discussion about the potential provenance of hooded crane with those respective bird records committees of those states unanimously accepting it as a natural vagrant. The ABA committee, however, did not accept the record on what was a split vote. A lot of people questioned this decision. I, even with my ABA association, raised my eyebrow in bewilderment at that decision, but so it goes. Here's the thing. Now that the Alaska bird got the hooded crane on the ABA checklist, the recording rules state that you can count any prior records 
if you believe that record constitutes a wild, naturally occurring vagrant. So it's sort of a back doorway to get that widely seen Tennessee bird on the list. But, you know, two incidences in five years is fair evidence for a pattern of vagrancy. Uh, Well, I mean, two is probably the least number of records possible to constitute a pattern. But, you know, it, it does. So count it if you like. It's your list. I hope that this long discussion of new additions to the ABA checklist will tide you over for a week as there is no rare bird focus in this episode. As I said, I'm out of town. We'll catch up with that next week. But on the show, an encore, as I said, Emily McKinnon is a researcher at the University of Manitoba. She studies the movements of snow buntings. It was a fascinating discussion then, and I hope you enjoy it a second time. It's that time of year when Arctic birds are moving south into the populated parts of the continent and citizen scientists are there to meet them, trap them, and use cutting-edge technology to track their movements. It's a testament to our interest in nomadic tundra birds that that could actually apply to a couple different projects. But this time around, we are talking about snow buntings and the Canadian Snow Bunting Network. Dr. Emily McKinnon is a researcher at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. She is a movement ecologist and administrator of the Snow Bunting Network, and she's here with me to talk about the project and some of the cool things they are finding out about snow buntings. Welcome, Emily, and thanks for joining me. Thanks very much for having me on. The Canadian Snow Bunting Network is not necessarily a new initiative. It's one that's been going on for, in some capacity, for many years. Can you talk a little bit about how it came about? Well, I think people uh, in, were interested in banding snow buntings um, you know, way back, uh, just in the early days of banding, uh, because you can trap them in these walk-in traps it, during the winter months. And so there's been um, quite a, a long history of just banding snow buntings during the winter months. It really got formalized into this network only in probably the last, um, you know, few years um, where we started to actually collect more detailed measurements and sort of try to bring all these people who are banding snow buntings, uh, you know, at their own sites, bring them more together uh, in a network. So it's it, we have a, a lot of data going way back, but we have really detailed data from the last few years from since we've formalized this network. What sort of prompted this interest in formalizing this network? Well, I think Oliver Love, who is my postdoc advisor um, and who really uh, took the lead on a lot of this stuff, he's at the University of Windsor and he was working up in the Arctic on snow buntings. And um, he was really concerned uh, with the snow bunting population declines that the Christmas bird counts have documented. And this is something that um, there was some uh, papers published on uh, just sort of white papers by Audubon showing that they had really declined during the winter at the Christmas bird count. Uh, And then Ollie was working on them in the Arctic and looking at things like breeding success and trying to get a handle on what was going on with them in the Arctic and seeing all the changes that were happening there. He was thinking that we needed to have a more formal uh, network and a more formal collaboration in the winter to try and get a handle on whether these declines were actually real declines or were the birds moving uh, outside of the areas where we could find them. Right, because snow bunnies are so nomadic, we often think of them as here one day and gone the next day. You mm-hmm. know, if you're looking at just Christmas bird count data, you could have a year where you have hundreds of snow buntings on the count and next year you have, you know, none. They could be somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's really interesting about them and trying to get a handle on the population numbers when you have a bird that's apparently just moving in and out of your range is really difficult, especially when we don't know what it is exactly that's predicting when they're going to be there or not. 
Um, so we can't really account for those other environmental factors that might be causing them to not be there one year. Um, so we kind of need to know more about what's dragging these movements in and out of range before we can say, well, are the birds really gone or have they just stayed further north and we're just not counting them anymore? You talked a little bit earlier about the the traps, the walk-in traps that people use to capture these snow buntings. When we think about banding birds, keeping track of birds, a lot of us meeting think of mist nets, mm. you know. These snow bunting network uses these interesting traps. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, I think this is why it's such a popular activity because, you know, really anybody can get involved. If mist netting and, you know, extracting birds from a mist net requires quite a lot of training and skill and, you know, it's quite fiddly work. I mean, these walk-in traps are basically kind of like a, a chicken wire kind of stuff. Um, you know, they have a little opening and they're baited with some cracked corn and buntings love cracked corn or some places they use millet. Um, and the birds will walk in and just not be able to find the exit out again. And they'll just happily gorge on corn in the trap. Uh, and once you've got a few in there, maybe a dozen uh, you can just go and open the top and basically pull them out. Um, it's actually really easy. And the snow buntings are very, very um, easy birds to handle as well. Like they're very robust. They're out there already in the coldest weather. I mean, you know, they're um, very calm to handle. So kids can get involved with this. Um, school groups sometimes do it. There's some schools in Ontario that do it. Um, so I think that's why it's so popular, because it's a really accessible way to ban birds. You found a lot of really interesting things about snow bunting biology based on just based on, you know, taking these detailed measurements of these birds. What are some of the things that you have found out about how these birds are using the landscape? Yeah, well, it was it's just such an amazing data set because we have something like over 40,000 records of individual snow buntings. And many of them, we have weight information and wing length. Uh, and we can also age them quite well and sex them quite well uh, based on plumage patterns. So it's really nice. We can have these groups of hatchier males and hatchier females and the adult or after hatchier females and after hatchier males. And we can kind of look at the ratios of these different groups and look at size. And basically what we noticed was that there are certain sites that are always catching more females or more males, depending on where they are. And it was a little bit of a latitudinal pattern. So we thought at first we were looking at something like the Junko situation where there's a differential migration by sex and that the males and females are actually migrating different distances. But it seemed like it was a little more complicated than that. So we started to dig into that with the measurement data to look at the size of the birds. And what we concluded, and this is just based on all of this amazing banding data, was that the males, which are slightly bigger, are more able to handle uh, more harsh weather. So more snow on the ground, more snow falling, colder temps. They're bigger. Yeah, that makes sort of a difference. Yeah, sense. so they can hang out at those spots. They're not actually really saving any migration distance. So that there may be in some cases a little closer to their breeding sites, but that kind of like falls out in the wash at the end of the day. It's really not that big of an, of an advantage for them in terms of getting to the breeding site earlier. Um, and then the females, which tend to be smaller, tend to be more common at the warmer sites with less snow. Um, so they sort of are segregating themselves by sex, but it's mostly a factor of size, not necessarily on our, uh, reproductive biology. 
That's really interesting. Some of the more recent studies that you've done have had to do with actually banding these birds with sort of geo trackers mm -hmm. using this really ingenious system called MODIS system. Can you explain what MODIS is and how you have used it to to track these birds? Yeah, well, it was it was really fortuitous that, uh, you know, we were really interested in trying to figure out what the Buntings were doing in the winter in terms of these movements, right? Like, how far are they going? Where are they going? How quickly can they adjust if the weather changes? Uh, and then at the same time, this um, system called MODIS, which is um, the MODIS Wildlife Tracking System, really just expanded dramatically. Um, particularly in southern Ontario, where a lot of our bunting banders were. And what this is, it's an automated radio telemetry system so that they were receiving towers spread out all over the landscape um, that are passively receiving information from any radio tag um, that goes by. Uh, so we can put these specialized radio tags. They're basically kind of like a souped up regular radio tag. We can put as many as we want out on snow buntings and any of these towers on the landscape can pick up our birds, um, which is pretty neat. And so we started doing this to try to get a handle on these movements because they're too, the movements are too far for us to really be able to follow the birds by hand. Um, right. And they're too small for us to use something like a geolocator, which is quite coarse resolution. Um, so this really filled like a, a, an important gap for us in terms of the amount of tracking that we wanted to do. Um, and Southern Ontario is just covered with these towers, which is just amazing. Uh, so we can pick up our birds moving across the landscape all over the place um, throughout the entire winter. And nobody had ever tried this before in the winter either. So we were a little unsure. Yeah. You know, the towers are mostly solar powered. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because they're out in, you know, fields or sometimes they're, you know, on roofs of buildings and they're connected directly to power. But we weren't exactly sure how well it would work in the winter. Uh, but thankfully it did. And we got some really interesting data from them. So how quickly do you get that information about these birds, location, the location of the bird? Is it more or less real time or is there some sort of a gap? Yeah, it's not quite real time. Um, it depends on the tower. Right. So a lot of these towers, again, are supported by volunteers, citizen scientists, some of them are for other research projects that they have just left their towers on for us in the winter. A lot of them are run by Bird Studies Canada. So it really depends on the tower. So I don't really want to do too much analysis <laughs> till I'm sure I have all sure. the data because, you know, these points might appear in the middle of my data set. So some of them are connected to the Internet. So the ones at Bird Studies Canada headquarters, for example, right. and they're downloaded regularly to the Internet like every, I don't know, couple of days or something. Um, others might just sit out there and not be downloaded until the spring. Piecing together all of that information does take a little bit of time. Uh, but at the same time, we would never have this kind of coverage in terms of receiving towers if it wasn't for all these people, you know, volunteering their barns and their fields and wherever they're putting up these towers and, uh, you know, wiping the snow off the solar power a couple times a year. What are you finding out about these birds' movements? Are they are they moving more than you expected? Are they moving are they moving less? They're moving a crazy amount. Yeah. As we sort of thought, we've, we figured they were moving a lot, but we didn't really expect to see them moving hundreds of kilometers in a month. Um, wow. And that's clearly what they're doing. And so our task now is to try to figure out what environmental variables are predicting these movements. And we know 
even from some more analysis of the banding data, that they really seem to be in tune to the local weather conditions and that they're fattening up when different weather systems are starting to come in and food might be less Mm. accessible. They're actually starting to gain fat or they're leaner when the weather is nicer. So they're adjusting physiologically even at that spot. So they're able to, to some extent, predict what the weather is going to do? Yeah. Yeah, so they're able to predict at a short-term scale, right. but also their physiology seems to correspond to long-term weather patterns at the sites where they're found, which is oh. interesting. So they're they're moving and they're able to use their movements to adjust um, where they are, but they're also they seem to be going to areas where the weather long on the long term has been very similar. Okay, so places that they know they can find. A certain amount of food. Yeah, so so it's sort of a complex story, I think, is kind of coming out of this. But definitely the movements are quite dramatic and quite fast sometimes. Um, and there seems to be certain areas where the birds uh, congregate. Perhaps the conditions are more favorable for finding food. You know, a lot of the times, you know, they might be in actually windy areas because it blows the snow away from Um, any grain that might be spilled, for example. So they tend to maybe track some topography a little bit. Um, So this is the kind of thing we're trying to piece together now. But we've we've had birds moving, you know, over 400 kilometers in a month. That's wild. Mm -hmm. So what are the future plans for the snow benching network? What are you hoping to find out using this data? What do you you think you can find out down the road? Yeah, well, I think it's it's really important to keep looking at this bird. I mean, this is like a sentinel from the Arctic that comes right into our backyards in the winter. I mean, like, I think that makes it a really, really important bird to look at. It's also a bird that's found, uh, you know, all around the world in, in cold regions. Um, so I think it could really be an important one to keep track of. Um, and I also would like to look at this Christmas bird count data and go back in time and look at the weather. Once we know sort of the weather that predicts snow bunting movements. Can we go back to those Christmas bird counts and say, well, should the birds have been here in, you know, 2012 or should they have not based on the weather? Um, And then hopefully project something about, you know, the future. So know whether or not they're moving north, whether or not they actually are declining. Um, I think that the pieces of the puzzle are all there. We just kind of need to pull it all together and we need to keep monitoring these buntings as much as possible. What could regular birders do? A lot of these modus towers are in southern Canada. Do you have a lot of coverage in the northern part of the United States, in New England, around the Great Lakes area, where there are also a lot of wintering snow buntings? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's more patchy yeah. out there for sure. And it'd be really great to get more um, American banders involved in the snow bunting stuff. It's such a great fun outreach, you know, project too, because it's so easy to demo for Mm -hmm. kids or for other, you know, interested birders. So it'd be really neat. I'm kind of interested in the buntings that really use more coastal Mm -hmm. habitats. And if they're doing something different than the buntings that are more inland, buntings do like lake shores, even coasts of the ocean. So I would kind of like to know if they can access different food sources there and if that might affect how they're moving in the winter. But yeah, for anybody who's interested in getting involved, I mean, um, reporting the sightings of buntings on eBird and actually mentioning something about the sex ratio of the flocks. Um, If you look at the plumage enough, you can usually tell that that's useful information too. Um, And we look at those kind of databases all the time to sort of try and help us interpret what we're seeing. Um, so that's definitely helpful and be great to get more banding out in the northwest uh, 
United States too. So in the Northern Great Plains region, Southern Canada there too. Do you think that the decline that Dr. Love saw early on that motivated him to take on this this Canadian snow bunting project, do you think that that was an accurate decline? Well, considering that all of our migratory birds are declining at some level, uh, you know, at least songbirds, I would say at some level that decline is likely real. Um, I also think the buntings are probably staying further north than they were when it was colder during the winter. I think that's probably also part of it. But I suspect that there might be a limit to how far north they can stay because we've got this big thing in uh, North America called the boreal forest where snow buntings don't really like to hang out. Not a lot of snow bunting habitat up there. (laughs) Yeah, so I wonder how much that could limit how far north they could stay. I mean, there are some areas, you know, in uh, Europe uh, and in Russia where there are populations of snow buntings that don't migrate at all. Um, so we might start to see something like that in, in our part of the world if the climate is changing enough that they can tolerate staying in the Arctic for maybe the whole winter. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised if we did see a few straggler snow buntings staying above the boreal forests in the tundra all winter. But as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Thanks so much, Emily. That was um, really cool stuff. Uh, Dr. Emily McKinnon is a researcher at the University of Manitoba. She has done fascinating work with bird migration. We didn't even mention the cool stuff you're doing with Connecticut warblers. (laughs) Maybe another time. Uh, She's on Twitter at Bird Biologist. Thanks again for joining me, Emily. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting this podcast and the ABA by joining the American Birding Association. You get a lot more than just peace of mind. You get our magazines, discounts to partners like Video Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can get all that information you need at aba.org slash join. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who spent far too long on Nextdoor trying to convince his neighbors that snow buntings are not winter-themed woven fabric decorations. Technical production is by John Lowry, who lives in fear of chasing that rare lazuli, only to be met with a group of sad birders shaking their heads and muttering, snow bunting. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who were disappointed to note that the Baseball Almanac does not keep track of attempted bunts, so it's impossible to know in the entire 16-year career of journeyman first baseman J.T. Snow how many records there are of snow bunting. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. A lot of people think that the McKay's bunting is actually a snow bunting subspecies, and that the McKay, in the name, doesn't refer to the discoverer, but is a derivation of the response given by one birder, who, when trying to make that case, was met by a friend with a resigned. Okay. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, folks. See you next week.